Right, I'd like to uh, welcome you to episode 60 of the Ski Podcast. Uh, today we're going to be covering a whole number of topics. Quarantine is obviously right on the top of the list. Uh, what the situation is going to be for skiing this winter we'll be looking at. We've got uh, an update from Silvretta Montafon in uh, Austria. We're going to look at a couple of events. Uh, I recently interviewed Jasmine Taylor, the telemarker, and she's going to be talking to us. And we're going to look at new technology uh, as well before uh, we consider that subject that a lot of people seem to have forgotten about, Brexit, which is uh, coming along. And I'm uh, lucky enough today to be joined by uh, two guests, and they are uh, Dave Burrows, who is a friend of the show, regular listener, uh, you will know him. He's director of Snow Pro Ski School. Hi, Dave. Hiya, how are you doing? Good, thank you. And also by uh, Lucy Aspen, who is the online ski editor at The Telegraph. First time on the show. Hi, Lucy. Hi, Ian. Thank you for having me. Very exciting. Excellent. A um, couple of uh, points just want to uh, uh, drop in. Uh, obviously would like to thank switzerland tourism for being our sponsor of the show and helping us to uh, run the show through the winter and a quick note to you listener uh, for episode uh, 59 uh, if you happen to hear an early version about uh, 20 people did if you're that listener then uh, make sure you listen to the full version now i've got a quick question for you two i'm going to start with you dave tell me traditional question when did you last go skiing I last went skiing last week, so exactly one week ago last Thursday. Did you? <laughs> That's great. To uh, Les Diableries to ski the piece that they have open. Right. Well, actually, I was going to mention Les Diableries uh, earlier, but we might as well cover that now because that opened early, didn't it, Dave? It did. Um, yeah. I mean, it's it, apparently it's the since they put all the new installations up there, so since they renewed all of the, 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 the cable cars and stuff, um, it's the earliest that they've ever been open. Um, we had quite a, a wild kind of weather system come come through here about ten days ago, and it dumped a whole bunch of snow in you know on Diablo and and around us. So we've still got snow down to about two thousand meters where we are, and um, and they decided that they had enough to 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 get the piece open. So they actually opened it on Monday the yeah Monday twenty eighth of September. Great. And you were one of the first people to uh, to enjoy it then, were you? I was busy on the Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. But the thir- on the um, on the Thursday, I, I grabbed a couple of our clients. I said, look, does anyone want to go skiing? Because, you know, it's closer. I was going to go to Saspe, but I've skied the glacier in Saspe two or three times already this summer. And kind of it's all right, but it's 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 better when they open it down to Morania because um, then you get like a thousand meters of vertical. That normally only happens after half term. Um, so this was closer, right? It's 40, 45 minutes for me to get to Diablo, you know, boots on and in the lift. So we just went there and there's only one piece to open. Um, it's not even a kilometer long and it wasn't, I've got to be honest, it wasn't in amazing condition. Um, it was that sort of early morning glacier, uh, you know, a bit crusty on top kind of stuff and well you've you you're definitely making us jealous because i'm going to ask well, the same question to uh to lucy now when did you last go skiing so i went last one skiing at the end of february the date eludes me in scotland of all places um so i'm extremely jealous of dave but yeah i went up to um glencoe at the end of february when they had that like week or two of like great snowfall uh, it was like a wednesday morning and i just said to my partner look we're getting we're getting in the car. I think we got in the car at four a.m. Drove. So I'm based up in the northwest. Drove up to Scotland. Took us four hours. Skied all day, literally every minute we could, um, and then drove back home. And I, I am so grateful for that day right now. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you are. Did um, in episode fifty eight we were talking uh, to Mike about skiing in Scotland, and it's definitely one that I've added to my list. I'm hoping to go there this winter uh, because. Evidently, it looks like skiing in the in um, Europe is going to be difficult. Um, we have got um, we discussed before about the quarantine situation, and uh, that has although I think uh, so. We're recording this uh, today on the nineteenth uh, on the ninth of October, and Italy has not been added to the uh, list of countries uh, excluded. Although I do know that Italy now requires Britons to have a coronavirus a negative coronavirus test. 
before they arrive into Italy. Switzerland has added a 10-day quarantine to British people going into Switzerland, which is going to make things difficult. But um, it is getting more and more um, difficult with the quarantine kind of closing around. And we're going to kind of move on. I mean, you can go skiing if you can go to Europe. Obviously, you mentioned Sassfais, Zermatt, Austrian glaciers are all open. You've got um, Teen and Les Dizalp are both going to be opening for autumn skiing next weekend. And then Val Terenz will open for its winter uh, in November. Lucy, you know, you're writing for The Telegraph on a regular basis, a very regular basis. You're probably putting out more articles than you've ever written, I would guess. I don't know. What, how do you see the situation for this winter then for British skiers? Do you think that British skiers will be going to the Alps, will be going skiing? I think if they can, there is no doubt that they will. And at the moment, the answer to whether they can is still so uncertain. Um, we obviously at the Telegraph back in September launched our Test for Travel campaign. And since then, we have been pushing a lot to... Um, to, to try and get the government to reconsider this quarantine situation because it does really put a halt on everything and if this quarantine stays how it, how it is and obviously the news from Italy last night about the tests and we're, we're looking at that this morning actually there's a lot of confusion about it people will be put off going there will be some that will go and they will and they're in a lucky position to be able to quarantine on their way back um who maybe have a bit more freedom, but the large majority won't. And there's there's a big um, debate and question that I have to flag to a lot of people who say, oh, well, go and I'll quarantine. And I have to say to them, well, have you got the right insurance? There's so much to consider. Um, there's fair enough saying you'll go and you'll quarantine when you get back, but there is a lot to consider. So the, the government really do need to reconsider this. And we were so close this week um, to hopefully like getting a bit of a breakthrough with the test for travel campaign. So just to outline a bit of what that was all about. So the Telegraph well, launched it back in September and it was a campaign to urge the government to roll out affordable COVID-19 testing at all UK airports and, and ports as well. So this isn't just flying by Christmas. And this would have been an absolute game changer for ski. Um, yes, a lot of people do go on hot winter holidays, but for us in the ski, ski industry, this is the lifeline that we need. Um, we were hoping for this week an announcement um, from the government and we were fed so many lines that there might have been one coming and then obviously the announcement was just that they're setting up task force so there is actually no definite date where, where, where at first we did think airport testing or testing could have been brought in by the end of October it's looking more likely that we'll be getting some sort of decision in November so it means that will skiers from Britain be able to go to the mountains this winter it means we still don't have an answer which makes my job um forever it's like uh, navigating a minefield because you don't actually no one knows the answer yeah to <clears throat> to clarify I think how the situation stands is that the government have said they're going to uh, launch a task force yeah. sadly uh, headed by Grant Chaps and uh, Matt Hancock which doesn't inspire a lot of confidence but they proposed to report in by early November I believe yeah. and they're looking at the a, a couple of ideas the most likely one being that you could have a test um, just prior to travel and then just after arrival which could bring down the quarantine time to five days and to me it feels like five days would be would make a significant difference in terms of the boosting travel. Um, a lot of countries, as we mentioned, you know, Italy are requiring uh, a negative test, uh, although it's still to be clarified, they only announced it yesterday, um, within 72 hours of arrival into the country or on arrival. Uh, so that would make a, a difference. But there, there is, um, you may have come across this, Lucy, something called Common Pass, which I've been reading about. Have you seen this? Yeah, so this is the, there's been quite a bit of chat around this. These, these are these health passports um, that people will be able to, to have and that shows where they're at and their COVID status. Have you tested? Have you tested negative or positive? And it will track your health 
history basically and it'd be a, a an essential part of travel in the future and yeah it's potentially a good idea because we've heard we've had reports in at the telegraph about people who have traveled to countries that have required a negative test on arrival um and they've struggled to get the paperwork or they've struggled to actually get the test so if as a global thing and this is the thing it needs to be a global effort because dave makes a very good point fair enough if the uk bring in airport testing and quarantine can drop to five or eight days fine but if you can if switzerland are still saying you have to quarantine for 10 days when you get there that's not going to happen because ski holidays unless you're a very lucky person who goes for longer than a week are traditionally a week if not shorter and i don't think anybody's going to go quarantine for 10 days in switzerland just for a week skiing and um, so it needs to be a global effort and yes the common pass and these health passports are one one step in the right direction i think i think you're uh, you, you're right uh, about 10 days no one i mean no one's going to go to a country where they have to uh, quarantine and i guess there's a question over um demand as well i mean we touched on uh, episode in episode 58 about apre ski and the kind of reduction of apre ski and I know you've written about that yourself but I wonder Dave if you think that that makes how much of a difference do you think that would make on someone deciding to go on a ski holiday whether or not they could experience the same apre ski as they might have done previously um, I think in these very strange times that we're living in right now, I think Aprisky is probably well down the list in terms of uh, in terms of reasons why people might go on holiday. Um, you, you know, I, I think people are interested in coming for the skiing. I think my my general gut feeling of the landscape here in Switzerland for sure, and they've got a big campaign going on at the moment, sort of trying to get everyone interested in skiing again. Um, the slogan is uh, "Toussaint ski." Um, malgré le, le COVID-19, which basically means everyone's skiing despite COVID. Um, uh, so I, I think, well, my gut feeling is certainly amongst our clientele and stuff like that, is that people are just like itching to get outside and go and do something, right? To go and ski or go and do some sort of physical activity. I'm, I'm not sure about APRE ski so much, and I, I don't think that that is necessarily such a big thing, but but you have very different rules there. It's really interesting to hear both <laughs> your your, your uh, perspective on this because essentially here in Switzerland, since May the 11th, it's just been kind of business as usual with a bit of... Yeah, kind of well, I've, I was, I think, as you know, Dave, I was lucky enough to go out to Sasfe and Zermatt in July and it, it felt mm. so nice to be in a, in a kind of normal uh, type of place. Uh, for sure. And I think it's interesting the Swiss, uh, you know, a lot of uh, countries are focusing on their domestic markets because they can already see that international markets are going to be decimated. What about um, in terms of uh, a question for you, Lucy, in terms of uh, uh, you know skiing itself? You know, in France, for example, and in Austria, they made it pretty clear that you're going to be a, you have to wear a face mask in uh, contained lifts uh you know gondolas cable cars not on uh, chairlifts etc but they're not planning to introduce any quotas uh on of the number of people on the mountain but i think in the states that is and not that we're likely to be going to the states but they've got a different policy in the states where they are saying they're going to sell a limited number of lift passes yeah, so Vail Resorts have come out and I really admire their communications actually throughout this whole thing. They've been really great with how um, they've come out with all their information. They, um, Rob Katz, the CEO of Vail Resorts, so they obviously own the majority of the major resorts in North America, including uh, Whistler in Canada um, and Vail and places like that. He came out with a very comprehensive letter which outlines all the measures they're going to bring in place. And yes, um, people are going to have to reserve um, their, their space on the slopes um, they're going to have to, it means your pass is going to have to have been bought in advance. Um, and that is in order for them to reduce um, slash monitor the capacity on the mountains. They're very eager to stress that because of the size of the mountains in North America, they're not expecting there to be every single day people being turned away. But I think the issue with that will come on powder days, for example. So when I went to Whistler, gosh two winters ago three winters ago we were so lucky to have some really great powder days and I have never seen queues like it 
because people that's the nature of it in North America especially when they live close to the slopes they can just travel up um, and make the most of great conditions and so you should but I don't think that type of experience will be able to happen in America this year and it is a stark contrast to what's happening in Europe um, I mean they're also bringing in health screening for ski lessons um, across Vail Resorts um, and that's something we're not seeing in Europe um, so yeah, it's a it's a real difference because I I can see when I look at the rules that are going to be in place in in France and Austria, yeah, we're going to know that COVID exists, but it's going to be a bit less intrusive on the ski experience. Whereas in America, fair enough, we're probably not going to be able to get there. You're definitely going to feel a difference. Yeah, and and Dave, you know, let's let's cut to the chase. I mean, do you think that I know resorts are open now, Diablerie is open now, but everything is very dynamic every time we record an episode things have changed do you think resorts will open as normal for this winter what's your feeling being on the ground you live in you live in Chumpre, don't you yeah i do so so look from a from a swiss perspective um the the association of swiss lift operators have basically come out this week in the in the newspapers and said that the lifts will not shut this winter so it's going to be a winter like like others but like I said, with a bit of mastery in in uh, in enclosed environments, so bubble lifts and telecabins and funiculars. Let's hope it does uh, uh, move towards that. I mean, I know that there are travel restrictions in place, for example, into Switzerland, not just from the UK, but certain zones of France as well uh, at the moment. Yeah. But normal opening for uh, for ski resorts this winter. I know they're very keen, you know, to make it happen, even if they're really focusing on those domestic markets. So this is our update in uh, in kind of early to mid uh, October. We'll see how it how it progresses. Hopefully we'll be reporting on. We'll have you definitely like to have you back on the show telling us about your skiing in Switzerland, uh, Dave. And hopefully we'll hear a little bit from Teen and uh, and Leaders Alp as well. Um, I'm just going to um, drop in now a short uh, interview. Well, it's not actually an interview. It's a report sent in by uh, one of our listeners, uh, Robin, who's actually working out in a hire shop in Silvretta Montafon in Austria. And uh, he sent us this report. Hello, this is Robin from Austria. And today I'm here to talk about uh, the Corona situation and uh, how it's going to turn out in the winter. I hope you guys are excited. We're located in Austria, uh, in Montefon. Uh, ski area is called Silfretta Montefon. I think we're one of the hotspots for free riding, free skiing, also all mountain skiing. Maybe you guys have been here before. Very nice ski area for sure. So we are getting used to the to the face masks and also to the to the disinfection stuff yeah it was all summer here but it worked out pretty good for sure and so that's how we're gonna progress in winter we also we've been to the glaciers already and skied a little bit and you feel you you queue up in lines you already have to wear a face mask for sure yes that you have to disinfect your hands but in the ski area it feels quite normal already you know like you don't have to wear your your face mask while you're skiing which is kind of nice we like kids that we don't have to wear that at least and um, yeah that's um, some details about uh, the ski area and how they're gonna I would say develop the winter uh, we will have a lot of different rules this winter you will find uh, probably some maximum for the gondolas not everyone can go in there it's gonna be a maximum of gondolas and Lifts are probably going to operate longer and start earlier to get done with the people that it works out more fluent. And yeah, that's how um, I think they're going to take care good of it. Uh, the upper ski is going to get very, very less because um, yeah, it's just hard to, to keep the people away from each other, especially when they get drunk and have party. And then, yeah, it's it's not that easy i guess to split people apart but it's gonna turn out good and and the ski area is starting to um to follow up uh, already in the summer with all this stuff they there's gonna be a maximum of people who get in the in the huts who can go eat and drink but at the end it's gonna work out for sure i mean people are always worried that 
ah, how it's gonna turn out is it gonna be different this season but I will I my opinion is that that people are still gonna be happy as long as you're on the mountain and you have that feeling of freedom that's all you go for for skiing you know it's I don't think it's very much you're not going to ski only to drink you go skiing for the freedom for the passion and for everything and that is not gonna change and that is gonna work we have a lot of interest in touring touring is is exploding at the moment we sold heaps already in summer of touring skis and everyone is is uh thinking because of also of the social distancing that people will um will go touring this uh this winter a lot because you have your freedom you can go alone and this is just something which is uh really epic i think and will turn out good for sure we are looking very promising into the winter probably it's going to be a maximum of people who get into the shop but from that yeah we have to wear masks in the shop but i think those few minutes the people can take as they get on the mountain after and yeah um we would be very happy if you guys uh, look over into the silfretto montafon into Austria hope you can fly here hope it's gonna turn out good so a lot of English people and a lot of people around the world here already and everyone is stoked to come here and enjoys the freedom you know and we as a shop as Sport Harry wish you a very very nice day a very nice winter and I hope you can shred all the lines you want and have all the fun you can have and yeah hopefully hear you guys soon and have a nice time that's from me Robin from Austria, Sport Harry, wishing you a nice day. Thank you very much. That's quite interesting. Thank you very much for that, Robin. And if you are uh, listening to this listener and you're out in the Alps and you want to give us a report on how things are going to be different, that would be great because uh, the more info we have from the ground, the better. I'm just going to cover a couple of things that uh, we mentioned in, uh, in a couple of episodes ago about uh, Listex, which we're quite looking forward to, something that was going to happen, a trade event in the industry. Sadly, um, the rules changed. That was cancelled as well. The world's largest ski show we mentioned is not uh, going on uh, either. Uh, but more positively, um, we discussed the National ski Snow Show which is the event that's going to happen at the NEC in October 2021. And Mike and I uh, talked about this in episode 58, and we didn't have enough time to uh, include this. But uh, I wanted to uh, let you hear what Mike had to say about that Birmingham show. And the Birmingham show is, is a great idea, because when I first started, I had a, a previous company called In The Powder, where I took... Uh, ski groups to kicking horse when it first went from white tooth to kicking horse in british columbia yeah and uh, i used to be an exhibitor at the the earl's court show as it was then yeah. and at the birmingham show and you saw very different groups of people and the birmingham show was a fantastic thing and, and certainly people from parts of wales the northern part of wales from the midlands and from the north yeah um, they weren't coming up to London. It was too expensive then. So there's something that the way they can go back to Birmingham now. I'm I'm convinced it'll be a big success because there's there's a lot of you know yeah. a lot of people living in that area. Yeah, I mean, I did shows when I was uh, with natives uh, and when I was running that uh, company, and we also found that there's something about like Manchester wasn't quite as good. It was a much smaller show, but the Birmingham show historically was always quite a big one. And we definitely found that that was a really committed audience. You know, if in, I don't know about the actual numbers, maybe there were more people going to London, but the type of people who were going along to Birmingham were definitely people who were interested in buying really, you know, committed skiers and boarders, not people who'd just gone for a for a day out because they're looking for something, uh, you know, to do. Uh, I mean, you know, in London, you're competing with so many things. But yeah, I'm sure it will be a success, that one. Lucy, you're obviously, you're possibly slightly biased on this uh, in this respect. I don't know if you consider Preston within range of Birmingham. I mean, do you think you get a, a more committed type of skier up, up north? I think, yeah. I mean, yeah. I think you'll get people... Birmingham's a place that you have to travel to anywhere, no matter where you live in the north. I mean, it's still a good hour and a half, two hours away from me. So if you're going to go to a show like that, you're making a commitment and you're obviously passionate about skiing. So, yeah, interesting. 
Next, I would like to uh, just mention Jasmine Taylor. Um, I interviewed her a couple of weeks ago. And in fact, we already have a uh, a ski podcast special, which listener, you may have listened to already because that went live uh, earlier this week. And you may have watched it on Facebook Live as well. Uh, But Jasmine is uh, a really uh, incredibly successful skier. And also an extremely modest one. She is. She's won uh, three World Cup races. Has a couple of World Championship medals. She's got thirty plus podiums. And uh, I just had a little chat with her. I actually learned to ski at the Ipswich Dry Ski Slope just up the road. Um, I had a project in primary school my my last year, and we had to do a speech on mountains. My parents saw the effort I'd gone to with this project. Um, and decided it'd be quite a cool place to go on holiday. So because we were going there on holiday, my dad said, oh, we should make it worthwhile and get some ski lessons at the local slope. So I just I just got hooked. As a 10-year-old, I was just absolutely hooked, and I loved it. That's great. How long is the slope at Ipswich? I actually don't know exactly. I'd say 150 metres. Oh, okay. Not, not uh, you know, a reasonable uh, distance. And then I'm guessing at some point then you got into into racing because I think, uh, you know, before you moved on to Telemark, you were part of the uh, the Alpine squad. I wasn't on the British team. I was actually, well, the, the full story would be I, I started racing on the dry ski slope. So I went from the regional to the national circuit. Um and at some point I did a dry slope ski camp with the British Ski Academy and uh, the director of the academy, Malcolm Askin, he said, hey, you come do some training with us on snow. And um, from there, I just, I went away and, and I did some alpine training. But it was about age 13, 14 when I started really training on snow. And a couple of years later, I tried ski cross I was on the England team in ski cross, but um, not in Alpine. And then after a season or so of doing that, I switched to Telemark. So Okay. In fact, we had um, I had Emily Sarsfield on the last episode of the podcast, episode 59. <laughs> and she told me that she was involved with coaching you uh, uh, back in the day at some point. She was a coach at the British Ski Academy. Yeah, I remember being very um, in awe of her very impressed because she turned up I, I can't remember it ever so well I was quite I was quite young at that point I think but um yeah I skied with her I think probably for a week or two I can't remember honestly but um yeah I, I remember well, she she said to me that you were uh, very uh, determined and uh, but at some point you obviously decided to make that switch from ski across from Alpine to to Telemark what what prompted that? How did you how did you even try telemarking? Well, back at the British Ski Academy, um, Malcolm was running a trial week in telemark. Uh, so everybody at the academy either had a morning or an afternoon doing right. telemark with this random French guy called Seb. And uh, I went one afternoon and I thought, oh, this is actually really interesting. I was good enough, but I didn't quite grasp it and I wanted to just get my head around it a little bit more so I asked Malcolm actually I probably pestered Malcolm please can I go back for another session so Malcolm let me go back and I was kind of probing Seb with a few questions trying to really understand it um and I thought I really like this this is really fun but it's not just telemarket. At the British Ski Academy, we tried ski jumping, we tried cross-country skiing, big air, ski cross. So um, they're really good at getting you to try all sorts of different types of skiing, which I think is really important because skiing is really yeah. fun. So. I, I, absolutely. But also when you're dealing with uh, young talent, I think um, – use i'm aware a bit of this with uh with cricket they try not to get people to specialize too young because if you have been you know, an ability you don't want to be tying someone down as like a bowler or a batsman or wicketkeeper at an early age you want them to try everything and so mm-hmm. and that, that the seb who gave you that session you know back then is that the seb who's still your coach now that is the same seb yeah right 
So from there, from this uh, Telemark taster day, I <laughs> I actually went on eBay and I bought some equipment and I took myself, well, my dad actually at the time, I think I was about 17, so I wasn't driving at this point, but um, my dad would take me each week to Hemel and we'd meet the Hemel Telemark Club. And this was actually set up by a guy called Cameron Fisher. So every week I would go and ski with these guys and I'd just try and really master the technique. So skiing with a big lunge, um, but really having a proper Telemark style. And after the summer of doing this, um, I returned to Lazouche where I met Seb. And I said, please, can I have a lesson? And it was actually really difficult to track him down, which I later realised he was actually just really avoiding that lesson because the secretary at ski school was saying, as an English girl here, she's in a cat suit. Uh, she wants to do uh, a telemark lesson. Dave, do you know Jasmine Taylor at all? Are you, have you come I, do, across- I do indeed, and I'm kind of, yeah, I'm with you on this. I think it's criminal how kind of under underrated uh, kind of or unknown you know jasmine is it's it's absolutely incredible what she's done within telemark it's uh it's it's extraordinary really compared to you know some of the other alpine disciplines you know there's there's quite a lot of really good you know alpine skiers coming through that you'll see in the next few years for sure and we've got obviously dave and uh and laurie um sort of flying the flag in the in the world cup but yeah i mean but jasmine's been doing this for ages it's uh it's, Extraordinarily, she doesn't get more coverage, really. Yeah, that's right. What about yourself, Lucy? Do you have you ever been telemarking? Do you know Jasmine at all? I haven't been telemarking. We have had people do it and report for us, and it sounds like I wouldn't be very good at it. So I'm not <laughs> going to really go out there. But yeah, I do know Jasmine. We've interviewed her before, and like I completely agree, she is completely under the radar. Her achievements are fantastic and yeah it's a it's that type of discipline that I think people need to know about more especially when we've got an athlete who is performing so well at such a top level so good luck to her I hope she um she does well this season however may it be yeah me as well I mean it would obviously help her so much if it was an Olympic discipline but uh, uh it still remains not as you'll discover uh, from the interview and uh, listen if you if you enjoyed uh, that if you did listen to it uh, you can always uh, in our back catalogue we've got uh, interviews uh, one-off specials with Graham Bell and uh, Benjamin Alexander the Jamaican skier and in fact if you look far enough in our back catalogue you can find our avalanche safety special that Dave did with Jim uh, oh. I think last season maybe the one before but these are amongst the specials that we've got back there um in the avalanche um side of things you know we talk or you guys talk a little bit about the technology we have um technology has obviously changed a lot i have to thank andrew brannan uh, one of our listeners who sent me uh, some clips from ski survey magazine in 1988 and in it There were some technology predictions and I recognize the name of the author, a chap called David Goldsmith, who I've, uh, you know, I've seen him on different uh, ski social uh, media and I tracked him down and I was actually able to interview him. So, you know, watch out, Lucy, because uh, uh, 20, 30 years in the future, someone might be asking you about articles that you wrote. That's terrifying. Way in the past. But David was brilliant. Today, uh, I'm with David Goldsmith. He um, was the equipment editor for Ski Survey magazine uh, back in September 1988. And the reason I invited uh, uh, David on today and wanted to have a little chat was because one of our other listeners, Andrew Brannan, sent me this article from uh, September 1988 uh, called Wired Up. Um, and Wired Up was a prediction of all the ski tech to come. Uh, hi, David. How are you? Hi, good morning. Do you remember writing this article, Wired Up? Yeah, it, it was one of the more memorable articles I did because somehow in that year of 1988, quite a lot of electronic te- technology was coming to fruition. Of course, the decade of 1988, we would very much, uh, the decade of the 1980s, yeah. we would very much associate with major progress with personal computing and mobile right. phone technology. So these things were all bubbling up within a general international environment of microchip, yeah. microchips and what they were enabling. 
and yeah. skiing has always been a, a fascinating focus for companies because so many people ski <clears throat> including engineers and owners of companies and so on and everybody wants to be part of the action so electronics kind of naturally found its way into skiing via people who maybe had slightly amateurish reasons initially but were commercially involved and then yeah. serious stuff came out of that what what i really love about the article even though it was written over 30 years ago and i know um i'm going to post it in the show notes he actually talking about a situation in 2001 so a couple of these things might have been uh, ahead of the time but how many things that you mention in there that now uh, exist within the world of skiing i notice in the uh, intro there you talk about computerized snowmaking which uh, you know i've i've covered before i remember going out to les arc in the winter and talking to them about how they're measuring snow depths and controlling the uh, the snow machines uh, to make sure uh, that it goes out most efficiently and you talk about robotic piece machines and I was only reading the other day about uh, some of the piece bashes that are controlled, are linked to GPS, so that yes. they can make sure the snow goes in the areas where it's needed most. Yeah, um, not only that, they, yeah, they they have this incredible computerization that enables them to know how much snow is beneath uh, the yes. machine itself. And I love the way that you kind of predict the advent of, you know, what what is not necessarily described as a, a, a smartphone, but a, a, a something that you wear on your wrist that has a microcomputer in it and you use it uh, like as an electronic lift pass, which seems to any you know, younger uh, listeners to the show, they probably don't even realize that lift passes used to be a physical thing that you had to carry on you and you had to show you to get on every lift. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the item you're talking about actually was i mean i wouldn't i wouldn't claim to have been a science fiction writer or something like that i was dealing here with real predictions being made by international companies and that uh if i recall correctly came via an austrian company called ski data yeah ski data has been very influential internationally not only in the development of uh wireless technology and uh, microchips that will read lift passes but of course that technology is directly applicable to urban transport systems like in london we use the oyster card these are directly comparable technologies which maybe had a launch pad with um, ski passes but of course had a much bigger market via urban transport needs I mean, you mentioned in the article or predict, uh, you know, a cashless society, which uh, exists probably now even more so uh, than ever before. Um, I think there's another thing in there you're talking about um, speed tracking. I mean, the oh, now I think a lot of people would use something like ski tracks on their mobile uh, on, or maybe, um, I don't know, Garmin or Strava or something like that. Yeah, in terms of wearable devices yes people are fascinated with all this data um i mean to be honest uh as somebody who's who's done so much skiing uh, and really appreciates the outdoor environment to be perfectly frank and honest i think sometimes there's a bit too much obsession with you know reading electronic devices you know just enjoy the scenery and what nature provides because that's the best treat of all uh, I would but, I would uh, uh, be be with you on that score. Yeah. Certainly a lot of people um, tend to be too obsessed with their uh, stats. Um, I, I believe, I think I am right in saying that you know Arnie Wilson pretty well. Um, previously on the show, we reviewed his book, uh, Ski the World for Ski Book Group. And uh, one of the things we found fascinating in it was at the time, you know, he was measuring distance by a little clicker that was attached to the, to the side of his ski. Yeah. It's so hard you know, to imagine that now, and it's so easy to, uh, to use an app or something like that to measure how far you've gone. And, of course, one wonders where all this data goes in the end. And, um, you know, it's a little bit spooky to think that, uh, you know, ski lift companies and ski resorts have a huge amount of data on their, their customers on the mountain. 
and uh, it's important this data is used collectively rather than uh, for any private study of an individual skier. So ho hopefully it, the data is being used responsibly. Yeah, well, um, certainly in some resorts, you can use it to assess what the uh, loading is on certain lifts around the resort. So you can adjust your skiing accordingly. So yeah, you know, yeah. as far as a ski tech is concerned, there are real benefits there. Um, I also noticed in the article that you uh, mentioned solar powered skiing. And uh, although that's been fairly slow to come about, I think there are some lifts now which are uh, run purely from solar power. And certainly in some resorts, uh, you know, they have more solar power uh, arrays in place than they used to. Yeah, I mean, I think possibly in the article that, to be frank, I think I made a slight error in perhaps being too optimistic about how much solar power you could derive from, say, solar cells on your ski boots, which, yeah. to, be on, to be honest, would not be that great. Um, and if you want to power things like heated ski gloves or ski boots, you probably need a bit more solar energy. And that's why those kind of devices are still reliant upon batteries rather than solar cells. Finally, I'll just finish off. And I also saw that in the article you predicted um, an electronic ski instructor. And you've probably seen recently there's quite a few very clever devices that can communicate from your from your boots, from your skis uh, via Bluetooth to your headphones to give you uh, in real time feedback on your skiing. Yeah, well, let's just be careful here. As a qualified instructor, albeit a while ago, I mean, I was qualified in 1975 as on Cairngorm in Scotland. Uh, Let's be very clear about what ski instruction is. It is very much demonstration and observation of a skier's physical movements. The supposition that you can accurately really judge a skier via sensors in a ski boot, I would be a little bit skeptical about. It's a very personal and very physical activity that requires an instructor's eyeballs gazing with a lot of experience gazing on a ski as sure one thing that is for sure is that you know as in 1988 as now there's a market within skiing for people who want to get the latest ski tech whatever it uh, offers and i think um that article you know sums that up really well there'll always be people out there looking for the best possible equipment or, or the best way to uh, to upgrade their uh, skiing yeah, sure. I mean, it is a very consumerist uh, activity uh, in that regard. And again, just coming back to the point we were discussing earlier, in contrast, if you want to be a real alpinist and just get on your touring skis and get away from the madding crowd, that option is always available. And we may well see this very, very strange winter coming up that a lot of people will opt for that alternative because they will want to get away from other human beings, sadly. And they probably won't want a lot of electronic kit. They'll just want to get up on those yeah. high summits and explore the landscapes. Well, that's brilliant, uh, David. I think you're equipment editor of Ski Survey, which is a ski club magazine uh, back then. And I know that you've been involved in the ski industry for a long time. So hopefully we can have you back on the show at some point to, to cover some other uh, elements as well. I'd be delighted, Ian. Thank you very much for contacting me. I found that conversation really interesting. I think that uh, David's projections, he was writing in 1988 and he was projecting ahead to uh, 2001. But so many of the things that he uh, mentioned have actually come into existence now. And we all have our favourite bits of ski tech. But I wondered, uh, Dave, what's your favourite bit of ski tech? I bet you you are actually a real kind of techie guy. You've probably got loads of no. stuff. Right? No, I'm not. This is the thing. I read that article and I looked at the question you were going to ask me. And I was like, this guy has been amazing because he's essentially predicted ski tracks. He's predicted the Swatch watch, which was the, the, the ski pass watch. He's predicted carve technology which yeah is using to great effect this summer in australia um you know the goggle thing with the the, the, the thing on the nose like we, i've done that before with a bit of tape and stuff to, to get people to start looking upwards um you know like there's, there's a whole bunch of stuff but 
yeah, the, the, uh, I've got to be honest with you. I'm a pretty low tech kind of person. Okay. I'm sorry to disappoint you. But no, you like to keep it real, Dave. Yeah, well, no, but skiing for me is an escape, right? And and there's already too much tech in our lives anyway. Um, in my opinion, I can't wait for the day when I get rid of the smartphone, the laptop, and all of this sort of stuff, and just go back to, you know, my rubbishy old Nokia 3310 because I've got I'm sick of it. I'm absolutely sick of it. And when I go skiing, I just want to be. Oh, it sounds like a like a hippie or whatever, but I'm just I just want to be one with you know the snow really hey i don't actually see any problem with what you're saying there at all and and to be honest with you it's an increasing uh, demand you sometimes find that people do want to in fact i'm trying to think now uh, lucy might be able to recall but i think there are some properties in the alps where they actually advertise the fact that they don't have a phone signal or wi-fi there so you truly can uh, escape from it all um, Lucy, what about yourself? Are you a techie person? Do you have... Uh... Us two are probably the worst guests for you to have to ask this question. <laughs> I mean, I the nature of my job, yes, so like I'll never go out without a GoPro, all that nonsense for recording things on the slopes, taking pictures. What I tend to do, because I am a bit of a geography geek, I do like looking at maps and things like that. I tend to get whoever I'm skiing with to have the likes of ski tracks or fat map um, on because I do like at the end of the day to look back and see where we've been. But personally, whether it's just me being ignorant and not using it, um, I don't I don't tend to use them. I, I'm a very similar. I, it isn't while it is work for me, it is also a bit of an escape. Um, so, yes, beyond strapping a GoPro to me and taking a couple of pictures every once in a while I try and keep it at that or else I think it just it, it just it, it it clouds the experience a bit too much I just like to look what I'm where I am and enjoy the feeling of snow under my feet rather than worry about how fast I'm going because I don't actually go that fast so I don't think what well, I want to know how slow I'm going <laughs> Yeah, well, I guess that, I mean, that 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 is great. There is an app that you might find uh, interesting called Peak Finder, which is quite good. And you can just uh, take a picture of the mountains and it will tell you what they're all called. I mean, also, I don't tend to use any of these things, but um, if I'm ski touring, uh, then I do use, um, you know, Garmin and Strava because I'm interested to know what vertical I've done and how long it's taken me, et cetera, because it's it's part of my training. But but Dave, you you mentioned about, wanting to get away from it all and David himself in the interview referred to ski touring and how it's more of a trend and and Robin from uh, Montefon also talked about ski touring and saying how that's becoming more and more popular and there is a, a kind of feeling this perhaps this season that with ski touring you won't have to you know you don't have to go on a lift if you're ski touring uh, you also we don't necessarily have to buy a lift pass you can certainly get away from the uh, crowds but there's a feeling of being able to get back to nature more. And do you, do you kind of feel that? Do you buy into that, Dave? I do feel it, but I don't tour. Uh, if you'd, uh, you see me, I'm not, uh, I'm not someone, I'm not a mountain goat. I'm not designed to go uphill. Uh, that's for sure. <laughs> but the, but I get it. And I've done my fair share of touring. Um, I understand it. And we've actually got some really cool, cool spots actually around, round our way so there's a very specific rando park in in morjan they've, they've sort of designated one whole side of the mountain to, for, for touring and there's all sorts you know there's different graded routes for you to go up and it's so busy um with people wanting to do that so i totally get it you know a nice gentle tour up and a bit of a ski down go and have a nice big lunch and and you kind of <laughs> earned it I, 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 yeah I, I get it and I, I know you know part of our role also is to know where the kind of the best lift access off-piece stuff is that is sort of quiet you know um and there's plenty of that around around where we are where you can kind of just get back to the the you know get back to there being no one around i think it's there's a lot to be yeah. said for that this what about piece. yourself lucy have you have you been touring and do you see it as a coming trend i have dabbled um i did a lovely um my first ever touring day really in Korsfeld two seasons ago and absolutely fell in love with it with the escape and the different side of the resort you see and yes I think this winter is going to be the winter that resorts can really promote these 
other activities that people can do. I'm going to talk about it a bit more actually at the Listex Live um, conference we've got coming up next week. Um, so yeah, I think the things like ski touring, cross-country skiing, I've tried that as well. Again, I was rubbish at it. But hmm. these things that a traditional um, people wouldn't pot potentially do on a traditional ski holiday, this is maybe the winter to try them because yeah, people might want to get away from the crowds. They might want to escape a bit more. And it's also that sense of we've been threatened with not being able to go skiing. Um, now is the time to make the most of it. So go and try it all because we've now experienced what it's like to maybe have this prospect of not being able to go on ski holiday. So I'm all for trying absolutely everything now just to make sure yeah. that I've ticked it off my list. Yeah, I think you're right that a lot of, I mean, that's just people's attitudes to life in general, I think, are people are more prepared to um, not leave things on their list uh, unticked and to try and be more uh, active. So um, a lot of what we've discussed has all been related to uh, a coronavirus and COVID. COVID. Uh, we tend, it seems to be slipping by a little bit, but we do have Brexit imminently creeping up on us. And uh, Dave, you run a, a ski school out in Switzerland. Uh, it's obviously not in the uh, EU, but I wondered in your position, I mean, you, you run the uh, Ski Instructor podcast and you speak to high profile instructors on a regular basis. I wondered if, uh, you know, what you feel or how you think Brexit might affect British instructors who are working in Europe in this winter and, and into the future. Yeah, it's going to be a tricky one. And there's nothing like leaving it late, is there, to, for everyone to make their mind up. This whole thing, again, is, is a nonsense. It's the same same thing. And they're really playing a, this sort of brinksmanship game that they're playing with the EU. Is you know, I can see why they're doing it. But but uh, it's it's causing chaos over here. So I'll give you I'll give you the Swiss example. But I've also yeah. done this a little bit with, with some of my European colleagues. And the... The Swiss example, so I've gone in a number of times into the, the commune because all the work permits and stuff here are issued locally by, you know, uh, so for me it would be my business is based in Valdivier, so it's you go into the commune and that's who organises it all. And I've been in there a number of times over the summer and they've said to me, yeah, no idea what's going on. As of 1st of January, nothing. I'm like, okay, well, that makes it very, very difficult for me to run my business because no one yeah. really knows. And actually, so last week or the week before, they said, OK, well, now we've had a bit of guidance. So anyone who is British that you're taking on um, needs to have their declaration. So we use we have a short term declaration process that we use. And there's a little website and you put all your stuff in there. And they say your declarations for this season for your British instructors have to be into that system and received before 31st of December. And uh, sorry, and confirmed by 31st of December. Uh, anything after that, and they said this to me, this is their words, anything after that, we have no clue what's going on. So so that's the experience from that side. Now we're, I'd say I'm 20 minutes from the French border. So in France now, you have to have either some sort of working visa or um, what they call a carte de séjour, which is kind of the same thing. Um, and those those documents needed to have been done by October or whatever. Um and actually, this is, and, and again, it's the same thing. Still nobody knows. And you can go and ask all of this same stuff for Austria, Italy, all of these places. Nobody knows what's going to happen to British people who want to work in the Alps. If you hold a British passport now, and let's say you're, you're, you want to work in France, the employer has to justify why there aren't any local people or EU qualified people who are better qualified or equally qualified for the job as you. Probably the biggest one will be, oh yeah, they're uh, they're Anglophone, so we need native English speakers here for my ski school. That would be the that would be the argument that I would go for. You know, how how do you know if that's going to go through or not? Sure, and and I would guess that as I mean, you're a business owner in in Switzerland. I mean, how how are you planning for the winter ahead? Because you don't know. You have a typically British clientele who who come to you. To yeah. the ski school in the winter how how are you planning ahead for how many instructors to employ and what are you going to do it's it's difficult because i've taken the team down by two this year 
basically so now i uh, but what we do is we look after a very specific market of expats who live here in switzerland so at the weekends we're rammed and we will continue to be rammed that's that's no issue because they don't have an issue getting here which is lovely and i'm really really pleased about you know how everyone's kind of pulled together as a community it's really really nice but but what's going to happen is because the team is smaller and i can't cope with any extra demand all those people who you know sort of come in or want to book a little bit late i'm going to have to say nah sorry because i just don't know i just don't know if i can take on two extra people furthermore then when you start speaking to other people abroad because of you know this is jumping a little bit back to covid and quarantines and stuff i'm speaking anecdotally for lots of people that i've spoken to lots of people in the outs have no bookings whatsoever like, do you, you mean know, ski schools you're talking about schools, specifically transfer companies ski hire shops like the whole lot it's so much uncertainty that people aren't they're just not booking so where a lot of people would have all of their winter kind of half booked out already by now there's nothing this is my anecdotal stuff there's a lot of people sort of in who would sort of are intending to go skiing if they can but in terms of actual deposits paid and money paid up, yeah, I can I can actually back that up because, you know, I work for a bunch of uh, different companies. I look at a, a lot of different analytics accounts and I can see what's going on without, you know, revealing any client information. I can tell you that there is a strong body of people who are looking. There are lots of people doing research. There are lots of people who are, you know, finding out about holidays, the the pages per session are very high people are looking at lots of different pages in the site and they're doing valid research but no one is booking because people need that certainty to book and in fact the ski club of great britain had a survey that they brought out um earlier this week which said that 86 percent of skiers plan uh, would travel this winter if they can yeah uh, the issue the issue is is quarantine and in fact 79 percent of them said uh they thought that the quarantine system was not fit for purpose so we could probably, uh, I don't want to dwell too much on the negative, but the fact is that this is where we are. So in relation to, you know, the, the instruction side of things, but I feel for you, you're running a business. We're all working in the uh, industry. And I think possibly the best thing that can happen for us is, is if that government task force you know, does look into things and hopefully reviews uh, comes together, perhaps with common pass to allow testing so that people can travel between countries. Because if you can prove that you're negative, then why shouldn't you be able to travel between countries? And, you know, when you have a situation where you have other countries, such as uh, Italy uh, and other countries around Europe, where you have a much lower uh, incidence of uh, COVID than in the UK, then in some respects, you'd almost be, uh, you know, safer over there. But I don't want to go too much into the uh, numbers. We'll try and keep it as non-political as we can. I'm just going to wrap up, wrap up the show uh, just now. That a couple of reviews that we've been sent in. Amy Moore uh, via Facebook said, uh, "I just want to say I absolutely love your ski part, ski podcast. That's very kind of you, Amy. It really cheers you up, especially during the pandemic, to hear all the ski chats. Uh, I wish I had more podcasts more often. So we're going to we're working on that with all of the uh, specials." Uh, on Snowheads Forum, uh, Chapel Thunderer said, "Just discovered the podcast, really enjoying it." Also, Benny Boy on Snowheads, good po podcast. Hadn't listened before. Hope you're still listening, Benny Boy. And on Twitter, a user called The Overball Number One said it's a really good listen. So thank you very much for all of those. And um, we are coming to the end of our time for today. So uh, just to let you know that in the next episode, 61, in a couple of weeks' time, uh, I will be interviewing... Uh, someone to be confirmed exactly who yet from the uh, the Jungfrau area to talk about that Iger Express lift that I mentioned recently. Uh, Ski Book Group will be looking at A Whole Life by Robert C. Tyler. We just ran out of a little bit of time to include it in this one. Very good book. Highly recommend it. Won't take you long to read. It's about a guy who is uh, born in a tiny little Austrian ski resort uh, in the early 20th century and his life unfolds in this ski resort uh, or in this village in the mountains as he sees it become uh, a ski resort. And it's a very uh, poignant um, and beautiful book that won't take long to read at all. And um, we'll be looking at a couple of other interviews lined up for 61 uh, as well. So, listener, if you've enjoyed this, please do subscribe. Uh, send us your feedback via social media at The Ski Podcast. We're on Twitter, Facebook. Uh, theskipodcast.com 
Uh, and I would like to thank uh, Dave from Snowbro Ski School in uh, Shumpery and uh, Lucy from The Telegraph uh, for joining me today. Thank you very much for your input, guys. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank and you. And uh, yeah, everyone stay positive. Eh? Maybe. Uh, yeah, we'll... stay positive. Exactly. Oh, That's a very, very good uh, point to finish on. We're going to stay positive. Hopefully in another couple of weeks time, we'll be able to report something more positive as well. Um, but otherwise, thanks very much, everyone. And, and that's it for today. Hi there, listener. Ian here. I just wanted to let you know that you can now support the ski podcast at buymeacoffee.com. Researching, recording, editing and publishing the pod takes up a lot of my time. And don't get me wrong, I really enjoy it. You know, I love talking with people about skiing. But if you do enjoy listening to the podcast and you'd like to support us, then you can literally buy me a coffee, or in my case it would be a cup of tea, but the idea is the same. So just go to buymeacoffee.com forward slash the ski podcast. Thanks very much.